We're going to dive in together this morning into Psalm chapter 24. I'm so thankful that you're tuning in. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And it's a, it's a day that the church commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem as the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the, the crowds were right. Jesus is a triumphant king. And the, the laying down of the palms symbolized the, the welcoming of a king in triumph. And they, they were thinking of him as a political rescuer. And God is indeed a political rescuer. He will rescue the whole world and unite it under the rule of Jesus the King. But in order for anybody to be in the kingdom, God had to do something about sin. And so the crowds were right. Jesus was and is the long-awaited promised Son of David, the King who would overcome every oppressor of God's people. But the crowds had missed some important details. God's goal is not for us to dwell just with a great human king, but to dwell with God Himself. If Jesus just walked into the city and set up His kingdom without dying for sins, then Jesus would be the only person there in the kingdom. We needed someone to go to war against our sin. A warrior king. A king who would remove sin and death as obstacles to knowing God's presence. A king who could qualify us to stand in God's presence. So in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, which Jesse read moments ago, we saw that as Jesus entered the city, the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And then the crowds, in verse 11, reply, He is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But as we will see in Psalm 24, Jesus is so much more than a prophet from Nazareth. And He's even more than a really good king. He is the Lord the King of glory. Hear now the Word of God. From Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Would you pray with me? Lord God in heaven, maker of heaven and earth, one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us 
to encounter Christ today. God, I know we're on live stream, we're in uh, we're over cell phones and iPads and on TVs, but God, we pray that in the, the moments to come, that Your Word would have its way in our hearts and in Your church. God, that on this Palm Sunday, we would recognize what the crowds failed to see. Jesus, You are God. And You are the One who has made a way where there was no way for us to enjoy God's presence. As we've been seeing in Hebrews, sin separates us from You and there had to be a remedy. And we thank You that You are the Lord and the King of glory who makes a way. Help us to see that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want you to see that if we're going to enter and dwell in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that Christ is now building and which will be seen in His return, if we're going to be there and enjoy the the blessing and the righteousness that's described in verse 5, that there's three things we see in this text. First, we must understand that we are accountable to the Lord who has authority over everything. The second thing we've got to see is that we must be innocent in our actions and our motives. And finally, we need to see that we must worship the King of glory who secures our victory and standing in the presence of of God. First, we need to see and understand that we are accountable to the Lord who has absolute authority over everything. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. Or literally, the Lord's is the earth. What a reassuring truth. The Lord's is put. It's the first word in the sentence. The Lord is the focus. He owns the whole world. Corona does not have the final word in this world, or should I say coronavirus. The Lord does. God owns the earth and all it contains, and the world and all who dwell in it. There's nothing in the world that does not belong to the Lord. Everything, every person, every one, every microbe, nothing exists without the Lord. Everything that is, is contingent upon the existence of the Lord God Almighty, who depends upon no one for His existence. In the Palmer household, we've been taking more walks than typical. And earlier this week, well I guess now that was last week, we were on a walk. And the Palmer kids are going through that Boys and girls together are weird phase. And so as mom and dad were walking down Barron's Road, passing the home where she grew up and where I asked her to be my wife, we were walking and talking and Stacy goes, look, that's where you asked me to marry you. And our kids said, ew. And I snapped back, just remember, if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't be here. And they were silenced. And then they apologized. And then they said, well, it's not so bad after all that you got married. That's what dependence and contingency does. When we recognize that we owe our lives to someone greater than us, it silences us and causes us to consider their greatness. And if, if there's anything I've learned in the last several weeks, it's 
again, just how dependent we are upon God for life and breath and health and vitality. One little microbe, one little virus can upset the entire world. God stands over all. The Lord's authority and our dependence upon Him should silence any idea that we get to set the agenda for our lives or make improvements to God's design and God's commands. Psalm 33, 8 and 9 says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord is not just the Lord of Sunday, church. He's not just the Lord when we tune in on live stream. He's not the Lord just when we pull into the parking lot. I can't wait till you can pull in the parking lot. But He's not just the Lord when we're listening to a sermon or listening to Christian music. He's the Lord when we're parenting. He's the Lord in our marriage. He's the Lord in our work life. He's the Lord Sunday to Sunday. He's the Lord over every aspect of our lives. And what He says about our marriages and our work and our home and submission and drive and ambition, all of that is reframed when we understand that we are accountable to the Lord who made everything. All that we say and do and think and believe and affirm should be oriented toward the authority of the Lord. This is because God is Creator and rightful owner of the world and of us. It is the Lord who, look at verse 2, founded the dry land upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord is Creator. And our role is to stand in awe of Him and live according to His design and for His glory. But as Psalm chapter 2 tells us, the nations are in an uproar. And they are making plans to try and throw off the authority of the Lord. You see, the problem in this psalm, when we get to the end of verse 2, is the Lord stands over it all and everything is accountable to the Lord, and yet nobody wants to accept His rule and His reign. People reject God's definition of marriage. People reject God's purposes for marriage. People neglect their children. People murder and steal and lie and cheat and abuse and covet and usurp. And the list goes on and on. You see, that's the progression of thinking between verse 2 and verse 3. If the Lord created and owns the world, and the world has rejected Him and His authority, then here's a question. Indeed, it's the question that rings down through the ages. Who then can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go up to where God is? If we've all rejected His authority and tried to throw Him off, then who can go up to where He is? Who can stand in His holy place? Which leads us, this crisis, this tension between verse 2 and verse 3, leads us to the understanding of what's being said in verses 3-6, through that we must be innocent in our actions and in our motives. We must be innocent in our actions and our motives. The words ascend and stand are terms related to being welcomed into the presence of God where we can enjoy Him, know Him, and worship Him. 
You see, in a world that's actively trying to throw off the Lord's rule, we've got to know who can stand in His presence. And the only one who can stand in His presence is the one who can be holy as He is holy and can go up and dwell with Him. In other words, He must be qualified to go where God is. The picture here is going up a hill or going up a mount to be in that special place of God's glorious reign. The physical mountain, Mount Zion, that's often described in the Old Testament, is the place where Jerusalem was located. It's the place where the temple built by David's son Solomon uh, existed after David died. But David is not writing about the first temple. He's not writing about a building sitting on top of a mountain. Scholars often suggest that that David is writing about the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem, or that he's writing about the Ark of the Covenant coming into the temple, and he might have that in the background of his thinking, but it's clear that he's looking to a future and a greater day where and not the Ark goes in, but the King of Glory goes in to the presence of God and stands there. He's, he ascends this metaphorical place where God is, and when he gets there, he's able to have standing in God's presence. You see, if God's presence is likened to a mountain, it is infinitely more difficult to scale the mountain of God's presence than it is even Mount Everest. Nahum chapter 1, verse 5 says this, The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him. The mount of God's presence cannot be scaled with the best equipment. It cannot be scaled with the greatest amount of planning or the sharpest wit or the keenest intellect or the greatest talent. There's nothing we can bring to the table to get up to where God is. God had to come down in the person of His Son. The only way into the Lord's presence is innocence. Look at verse 4. The one who may stand in the holy place where the holy God dwells must have clean hands and a pure heart and not swear deceitfully. To enter and enjoy God's presence, we must have lives that are characterized by right action and right motivation and right speech. It's not enough to do the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong things for the right reasons. Appearances count for nothing before the Lord who sees what we do with our hands He hears the words from our lips and He knows what we believe deep down in our hearts. The Lord said to Samuel when He told the prophet to pick David as king, God sees not as man sees. For for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 You see, God has x-ray vision. He is looking deep down into the depths of every heart. And He can use a virus to help us see what God sees. And the bottom line is, without Christ as our cure, we all have a disease. The x-ray comes back and it shows there's something wrong on the inside. The one who stands in God's presence, verse 4, is He who has not lifted his soul to falsehood or worthlessness. The word soul represents the deepest level of concern 
for someone. Let me ask you, what is your deepest level of concern in these days? In this nutty time, what are you trusting in? Are you worried about your job? Or your marketability? Or graduations missed? Or parties missed? Or ball games missed? These are all important things. God has given us this world to enjoy, and this is a difficult time, but none of these things are what we lift our soul to. We lift our soul to the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Look over quickly to Psalm 25. Scroll there or turn there just quickly to the first couple of verses. David says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. We lift our soul up to what we trust in. What is it that lifts your soul? Can your soul be lifted up in a day when you're confined to your own home and you have to put on a mask to go grocery shopping? Yes, it can if you have communion with the Lord. Don't mistake. I'm ready to get past this virus like yesterday. I can't stand it. But I do believe that God has a purpose in allowing this virus to be on this planet. I believe He's allowed this virus to expose idols in the lives of His people. We may have, church, right now, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to learn truly and assuredly and deeply that soul satisfaction at the deepest level of who we are can only come from abiding in Christ and in Christ alone. When everything else is taken away, the Lord remains. God might very well be taking away some good things so that we have the opportunity to know that better than we've ever known it before, that the Lord and knowing the Lord is the absolute best thing. That is what endures forever. Those who know God's presence are those who do not believe. Do you see it in verse 4? Falsehood. They don't buy the lie that they exist for themselves. God, forgive us for being satisfied with and distracted by lesser things. You alone, O Lord, can save. You alone, O Lord, can satisfy. And as we see in verse 5, the he of verse 4 is the one who receives blessing and righteousness or vindication from the Lord. In a world that rejects and throws off the authority of the Lord, there is one whose life is vindicated and blessed by the Lord because he does not follow the pattern of the world, but keeps his eye on the Lord God Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. Of course, there's a problem introduced, and that is this. Who is this He? who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted his soul to falsehood and has never sworn deceitfully. Who is this one who has never done any of these things? Because Paul says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And yet, miraculously, verse 6, Somehow, wondrously, graciously, gloriously, we read in verse 6 of a generation of people who does seek the Lord. They seek His face even. They don't just want to know about Him, they want to know Him. They want intimacy with Him. They want to be close to Him. There's a generation of people who desires to be with God. 
Not just to have a Zoom meeting. Not to just have a face, uh, a Microsoft Teams meeting. They want to know God face to face. They want to be where God is. They want to go up the mountain and be with Him. There's a generation, not just a person, but a generation that keeps on seeking to know and be with the Lord. And the generation even includes Jacob. Now, some of your translations might say God of Jacob. That's because the Greek translation of the Hebrew has that there. So we're not sure if the text says even Jacob or O Jacob or O God of Jacob. But the point is the same. Even Jacob is included in this generation. Now, who is Jacob? Jacob is the one who wrestled with God and didn't let go until the Lord blessed him with a glimpse of His presence. In Genesis 32-30, we read this, Jacob called that place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. That's the generation of people we, we, we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of the people who seek after God, seek His face, know His presence, and our lives are somehow spared. Now let's think about Jacob for a moment. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. He was a supplanter. He was not a clean hands, pure heart kind of person. He swore deceitfully to his own father Isaac to the demise of his biological brother Esau, and yet Jacob is among the generation of people who seek the Lord's face and are not consumed by God's presence, which means there's hope for us. And we get to the end of verse 6, and we see the word Selah. Biblical scholars aren't entirely sure what the word means. Most think it's likely a musical pause in the song or in the psalm that, that is telling the reader to go back and reflect on everything you've just learned, everything you've just stated, and everything you've just believed before you move on. So I think when we get to the end of verse 6, I think David is saying something like this. Wow. The Lord owns it all. And it is only He who is inwardly and outwardly pure who can be with God. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. But who is this one? How will anyone know this God? But sure enough, verse 6, there is a generation who seeks God, and it includes even Jacob. What is going on here? What is God doing? Somehow, some way, there's going to be a group of people drawn from among every tribe and tongue and language and nation who will be called the generation that will have a standing in the new heavens and the new earth for all time. And they will be with the Lord and things will be as they should be. And everyone will acknowledge that the Lord is Creator and that He is God and there won't be any viruses or death or sickness or sadness. And the people who look to Him now and seek His face now will be there in that day. Wow. You see, there's a generation of people who's going to be identified not by their sinful deeds, but with the He of verses 4 and 5. Who is this He that you must know? 
That is exactly how we transition from the end of verse 6 to the Selah, or the wow, into verse 7. That's the progression of David's thinking. And after this pause, David asks exactly that question, Who is this? Who is this one? And he tells us in verses 7-10 through that he's the king of glory. We must seek the King of glory, therefore, who secures our victory and our standing in the presence of God. While we could not go up, there's one who came down and goes back up, and all who trust in Him and follow Him may be ushered into God's presence. Verse 3 asks, who may enter the presence of the Lord? And now in verses 7 and 9 we read, lift up your heads, O gates. Now, gates don't have heads. These, this is a metaphor Uh, for telling us that it's time to have joy. It's time to lift up your head and to rejoice. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Here's what's happening. We have a picture of a king at the gates of God's presence saying, let me come in. Rejoice, you gates. Lift up your heads. The Son who left heaven and lived a perfect life, and died to purchase a generation of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, has been raised and He's been ascended, and He is ready to enter into the presence of God for us. He has secured the victory of the generation that seeks Him. And the everlasting doors, therefore, have no other response but to rise up and let the King of glory in. Notice verse 8. Notice the question, who is this? It's the same question the crowds asked on Palm Sunday. The crowds did not recognize Him. The religious scholars dismissed Him. But heaven knows full well who the King is. You see, the question includes the answer. David doesn't ask the question because he's confused. He asks the question to to step up the the glory and the praise and the worship and the anticipation. It's like after a a victory when you go to your rival and you say, who won that game last night? David knows full well who has come and who has conquered and who has won. Who is this? He's the King of glory. He's the King who possesses the glory of God. He's the King who possesses the glory that we all fall short of. He possesses the infinite weightiness. The word glory means heaviness or weightiness. He possesses all of the weightiness that belongs to God alone. And if we doubted any of this, look at the next line. The next line says that the King is the Lord. This one, this He of verses 4 and 5, who is qualified to enter the heavenly presence of the Father is heaven's only begotten Son. And what is pictured is what we have been studying and seeing in Hebrews, the entry of our King and our Priest into the heavens to be our advocate after coming to this broken earth to wage war against Satan, sin, and death. You see, church, Jesus is far more than a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He is the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth, and He came down to the earth to go to war against everything that was opposed to us, against our sin and the death that it deserved, and what a warrior He is. Look at verse 8. 
He is the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. How strong is this king? He created the world. And then he came down and gave his life to remake it in himself. He commanded the wind and the waves to stop. He raised his friend from the dead. The mockers did not undermine him. The doubters did not dissuade him. And death did not hold him. Jesus is our victorious warrior king. And he is able to enter where none of us was qualified to enter. And if we will trust in him, he will usher you into where he can go. The very presence of God. In verse 5. The word translated receives, receives blessing, is interestingly enough, the same word translated lift up in the rest of the psalm. And I believe what David is doing here is a bit of a play on words. You see, Jesus doesn't just receive blessing from the Father for His obedience, He also lifts up blessing by giving Himself. Jesus left heaven to be lifted up on a cross. Jesus came down to lift Himself up as the way that we could be blessed by the Lord. The only way you can know the blessing of knowing the Lord is by the self-sacrifice of Jesus in your place. The gates must lift up. The gates of heaven must lift up because Jesus obeyed His Father all the way to the cross. And the One who was lifted up is the One who can now lift your head up And give you joy and reason for shouting and celebrating because the life that you live that deserved death, it has been canceled through the death of the One who came and conquered it and has been accepted in the heavens for you. He was lifted up. So lift up your head, church. In a day of coronavirus, in a day of despair, in a day of social distancing, in a day when you can't find toilet paper, you still have access into the throne room through the death, burial, and resurrection of the King of Glory. And He's not just any King of Glory. He's the King of Hosts. He's the Lord of Hosts, meaning angels or armies, or perhaps angel armies, which reminds us that when Jesus came, He could have called legions of angels to help him but he did not call the angels to take him down rather he hung on the cross to redeem us his people what a king we serve though we've all been like jacob we can receive god's righteousness by trusting in jesus the king and the lord those who want to have a blessing of forever future in the presence of the Lord, must now surrender their lives and hopes and dreams and ambitions to Jesus the King. The crowds didn't quite recognize who Jesus was. But in Revelation chapter 7, we get a vision of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and we have the new heavens and the new earth. John says this, After this I looked and There before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation and tribe, people and language, standing, there's that word standing again, standing in the presence of God, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes representing their cleanness, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, hailing Jesus as King. And listen to what they said. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Church, who is this King of glory? He is the Lord and He is the Lamb. He is Jesus, my Savior, my God, my Lord, the King of glory. If you don't know Him, we invite you where you are to trust Him today, be forgiven of your sin, and be granted standing in the forever presence of God. As Paul and Jesse come, why don't you pray with me as we prepare to sing our final song? God in heaven, thank you for making a way where there wasn't a way. Thank you for coming down in the person of your son to pay the price of our death, to rid this world of sin and death and Satan's power, and to give us a, an inheritance that is on reserve, that's undefiled, that's indestructible. And Christ, we trust today that when You come again, when You appear, just as soon as You come, that all will be made right. We trust, God, that despair and death and longing and sadness will be gone and that those who seek You now will be able to stand before You then. So God, if there's any who does not know You today, I pray in the, in the comfort and the privacy of their own home that they'll know that You are there, that You are knocking and that if any will call upon the name of the Lord, confess their sin and cry out to you, that you'll rescue them and give them the true hope of knowing God. Lord, have your will and your way in our church and among the people of Roanoke who are listening, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.